0: Hello and welcome to Dateline New Haven on WNHHFM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Paul Bash, your host, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make our community tick. Well, there's one headline that's been such interest to me that's going on in America. It's going to be going to Supreme Court that we have two people from New Haven here who are playing such an interesting role in trying to influence what will happen and help us understand it's about the future of the internet, it's about the future of democracy, it's a future of civic discourse, which is a fancy way of saying Google versus Gonzalez, Supreme Court's hearing a case that involves a Texas law about what, you, what tech platforms like Facebook and Twitter are responsible for. And a clinic at Yale has been studying these issues, dealing with these issues, and submitted an amicus brief in that case. So i say good morning to David Dinelli. Good morning. I'm sorry? Good morning. Good morning, who's the visiting clinical lecturer at Yale Law School's Tobin Center for Economic Policy and the group we're talking about today which is Tech, tech Accountability and Competition Project TAC and Eleanor Rundy is a third year store, uh, student at Yale Law who's already done a lot of things in her life who actually helped write the brief correct
1: helped that, draft it yes, helped draft the right. brief
0: that's being heard in this case Google versus Gonzalez thanks so much for uh, coming in both this morning it's very nice to talk to you it's our pleasure and I'm going to ask you, especially you, David, to get real close to that mic and face it when you speak so we can hear you well. Um, so Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. You often hear the word Section 230 throw around. And it's from 1996. It's a law that I guess, Eleanor, you especially have been really studying when you are at this brief that Congress passed in 1996 that gave tech platforms special legal protection. So unlike, let's say, the New Haven Independent or WNHH. They can't just go libel someone in We can't just go libel someone and publish someone, or suggest that somebody go blow up a building or kill somebody, or that they tell some horrible things about people without being held responsible. But under Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, platforms are allowed to do that. They're not. They are not going to be held liable for what people post there and what they publish. The publish, because I guess the internet was a different place then today. So what's at stake now, Eleanor? What, um, what is this case, Gonzalez versus Google, and it, what, how did you step into it?
1: So our clinic, the Technology Accountability and Competition Project, started last uh, two years ago because a group of enterprising students saw a need for Yale Law to have some more opportunities for students to get involved in issues like technology, which as you say, are right at the core of the future of our democracy. Gonzales v. Google is a particular case uh, about Section 230. Section 230 was passed in order to allow user-generated content, that is, the things that you and I say every day on Facebook or on Twitter, to be published and presented in real time to other people. In order to enable that and, and not force companies to go to either of one, one of two extremes, either total censorship or the wild west Now, how did this
0: word censorship get thrown out that censorship is when government doesn't let somebody legally say something a private it's not censorship i mean i don't like it but every publication decides what not to publish or what to publish based on its rules and their private enterprises you get to go choose what you want to watch or listen to or read right
1: well, you could have a very open funnel, or you could have a very closed funnel.
0: But why is it called censorship? I thought censorship was government taking action to limit speech.
1: Okay, we can use another word. No,
0: no, I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm really mm-hmm. trying to understand it, because everyone says that word censorship.
1: Mm. I suppose it wasn't
0: about what you were saying.
1: Sure. I suppose it's about how I think about it. Uh, for the tech platforms to be able to publish, to adhere to their policies at the best that they can, given the speed and the scale, the volume of user-generated content to be able to publish and present it in real time, adhere as best they can to the policies that they have, but not be exposed to crippling liability that makes them afraid to publish that content to begin with.
0: They're worried about they to get sued. That's right. Which is something every publisher warns about. Like, I can't, if someone wants user-generated content, they put a comment to a, an article in The Independent and says, so-and-so public figure stole money and also, like, I saw them run their car when they were drunk. I can't publish that because that's not true and it could destroy their life and I can get sued. But I guess we decided in 1996 that it's very important for the future of our country and democracy to allow companies that are big and make tons of money and do this on a large scale to be able to publish that right away and not have to be sued. You saw my bias in that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere yeah. in there, yeah, it came out. I would say Section 230 does place pretty meaningful limits on immunity. And that's really what our, the brief that we mm. helped draft was about. It was about going back to the text of the statute and saying, immunity only applies with two prerequisites. One is that these internet platforms, internet service providers, now they're called digital platforms, or intermediaries, did they create or develop this content in a way that contributed to the illegality of the content? Or was this just amplification or presentation of another, of, a, of a general user's? user-generated content
0: and is the user legally liable
1: potentially yep
0: okay so 1996 well first of all why don't you tell us the specifics of this case go go first you want to tell us about that david who sued whom and why
2: sure the facts are really um, quite tragic that gave rise to this case and uh, our brief and other briefs that address the legal issues um, i think acknowledge that without necessarily deciding that we have to make our argument about those facts But those facts were as follows. I'm going to just get a little closer to the mic. Those facts were as follows. The um, allegations were that there was an ISIS attack on a cafe in Paris in which a young American woman died. Her parents then brought a lawsuit against Google on the following basis. They alleged that there were ISIS recruitment videos that had been posted on YouTube. Which is owned by Google. Which is owned by Google and which were then amplified by Google and sent to people who were susceptible to the messages in those recruitment videos. The rabbit hole. That's right. And the um, allegation is not that the platform did anything other than take those videos, which were banned by their own terms of use, and present them to other users. It made a mistake, but nonetheless, this material remained on the YouTube site uh, for some time, and the allegation was that that contributed to the successful recruitment of people who were involved in the attack that led to the death of the American woman. The lawsuit was against Google on the theory that that was a violation of the Anti-Terrorism Act for mm-hmm. Google to have hosted those videos. And the question that the courts are addressing is whether the Section 230 immunity applies under these facts. Mm. And I guess there are big implications not just
0: for this case, but as we discussed before in the air, your job as lawyers is first to look at the facts of the case, right? That's You're correct. not a Supreme Court justice saying, do we want to say the Constitution long term?"s You want to say, does it apply?
2: So what did, what did you two conclude? Well, we uh, were representing clients, and lawyers represent clients. So who's your client? Our clients in our brief are Senator Ron Wyden and former Representative Christopher Cox. So they wrote the, the, the Two Section 230 Act, right? That's right. They were both in the House of Representatives at the time, and they worked together to reach a um, solution to this question which we're addressing today, which is what should be the responsibility of internet platforms? Should it be different than those of, for example, the New Haven Independent? And why, and what are the limits of that? And they came up with 230, which then they shepherded through its passage, um, which was nearly unanimous at the time, and it became law in 1996, as you said.
0: Because everyone had bipartisan love for the tech companies the way they now have bipartisan hate, (laughs) I would argue, in the same extreme direction.
2: I I, I wasn't as active in this issue in 1996, but I think that it's fair to say that there was probably less bipartisan hate than there is now. I don't know if I would characterize it as love.
0: Well, I kind of felt, they. I mean, when you looked at the discussions took place with the Obama administration, the Republicans agreed they said it was generating wealth, tech industry. There was all this, like, great promise, which I think there was with these emerging tech platforms. And... They gave contributions to politicians too. I mean, look, it always sort of everyone sort as of a win-win-win, right? Don't you think? When you're looking back at the historical context of this, Eleanor, that that we saw a different kind of reality of what these platforms looked like when Wyden wrote, and Cox wrote the law in '96 than what we see in 2022, three.
1: At least in the context of this case, I think you would see more similarities than maybe your presentation suggests. So, on a couple of of points, the size. The speed and the scale of user-generated content back then was an issue, and it was part of the reason why Section 230 was passed.
0: They felt they needed to not stop the flow. That's right. Which people are still saying some of the judges at the appellate level have said it's so important that we don't stop this flood of information from coming out immediately. That's right. I think which is really I, I have a hard time understanding that. Why is that so important that like ISIS be able to say in five minutes that look at what we did with Charlie Hebdo rather than like wait an hour and see if it makes sense.
1: I think the enrichment of our discourse by allowing user-generated content in real-time is considerable. Additionally, at the time, recommendations were, were happening all over systems. They, they helped enable the growth of Amazon, which was ranking books, uh, search engines that were ranking results. So it, it allows you to see what you are hopefully looking for if the algorithm is doing its job.
0: And it's sort of like the weather. It's happening. Technology has changed how we communicate with each other and how information spreads. So the question is where the rule is going to be. That's right. So your client, now why did they need you to hire you? They're not being sued, but they want to do an amicus briefs. And why, why is that? Why did the congressman who writes these laws want Yale Laws Clinic to help them draft an opinion?
2: Amicus briefs are a way for people who have insight into the issues before the court to offer those uh, opinions, views, and sometimes additional facts, frankly that might not be considered or be presented by the parties to the case. As you adverted to earlier, the parties to the case are limited to the actual facts that are in the record, the laws that are before the court, um, and they all are being presented by lawyers who have obligations to advocate for their clients. A Miki, who can be anything from a law professor to a scientist to someone on the street, can offer insight other than that Offered by the parties in a way that gives context, gives nuance, and tells the consequences of different kinds of actions in, um, that the court might take. And a
0: Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court is still considered like the great debating society where they are looking at the big issues. So I could imagine that the briefs often play. Your, your brief is going to actually be very important to what gets discussed
2: that day and how they think about the implications of what they're doing, right? Well, we hope so. And by representing the two people who were um, charged with, or did in fact um, write the law. We think that they're, they're focusing on the words of the, of the law itself will be given great weight by the court. So how did this happen? So you run this clinic.
0: You come from D.C. Mm-hmm. And, and run this clinic at Yale. You had the students formed it because they want to have an impact. How did it come about that these Congress members contacted you? And then how did you go about working with the students to have this opinion put together?
2: I'll answer that. Carefully, because some of that is um, privileged or part of that. We can just tell us yeah. and the listeners. Okay. <laughs> You're but covered by Section 231, we, <laughs> which is you can say anything on deadline. <laughs> 231. I'll have to read that <laughs> when I get back to the law, <laughs> to the law, law library. Um, we, as a clinic, had been de- doing work with um, a member of Senator Wyden's staff on a number of issues. Oh. And when certiorari was granted, that's a hard word to say for many people. When they say we'll hear your case. When the court says that we'll hear your case. Uh, We inquired as to whether there were plans to be involved on the part of the the senator, and uh, lo and behold, there were, and we ended up where we are now, representing them along with co-counsel.
0: How fun, and how many students did you end up working with?
2: There were seven students who worked on the brief out of a total of um, 14, 15 students, 14 or 15, I should know, but it's either 14 or 15, seven of whom worked on the brief in a very short period of time.
0: I remember when you do these briefs, like when the immigration cases with Trump, when the Yale students were working 24 hours around the clock that weekend, that first weekend, and they put the briefs up. It's exciting stuff when you see how the law makes a difference in people's lives. So Eleanor, how did you get involved in this brief?
1: Well, I was lucky enough to be a member in the clinic, and I should emphasize I was neither the sole nor the lead student yeah. working on this brief. Um, I'd love to give a shout out to Abby, Daniel, Cart, John, Natalie, and Shreyas, who all did amazing work at together over the course of the last fall
0: and were you meeting in person or doing the seven of you and and you were you meeting mostly um over zoom or
1: we were all in person and when the opportunity came up to to contribute to this effort uh people just raised their hands and said we'd love to do it and at the time I was sort of overloaded on my schedule and I said you know what I think I'm going to drop a class
0: oh so interesting in order to what class did you drop
1: it was another independent research project and I just decided that that being part of this brief was going to be a lot more fun and probably a lot more uh, influential. And why did you, you
0: care about it?
1: I cared about it for a couple of reasons. I think Section 230 is an incredibly important act, and I thought it was also a unique opportunity to get back to the text of the statute and to hear from the co-authors both about their original intentions and about the way that they felt the court needed to read the statute in light of the facts of this
0: case. And did, why didn't Cox come down, or was that virtual you talked to them?
2: Uh, we were in contact with um, their staff and with um, Representative Cox directly. Uh, it was a very close working relationship. It was intense. There were lots of situations in which um, various people who were involved had similar views on certain of the interpretations we needed to make. Other people had other interpretations. It was just like the best of the best in, in terms of our experience working with people who thought very deeply about matters of great concern. So it was a terrific experience all around.
0: We're talking to Eleanor Rundy a Third year law student at Yale and David Dinelli, who runs a uh, clinic there about um, tech accountability and competition. And they worked with a team of others at Yale to put together an amicus brief that's part of an important part of an uh, upcoming Supreme Court case, Go- Gonzalez versus Google, about what responsibility tech platforms have, like YouTube, for the uh, impact of the stuff they publish. And you're hearing that in Daytime in New Haven, 13.5M, live dot newhaven.org. When is the case being heard? It's going to be argued on February 21st.
2: And you, I noticed that last weekend you actually filed the brief. We did. It was filed on Thursday, which was the due date for all of the briefs that are technically in support of Google. That's a little bit of a misleading term of art. Our, uh, our clients concluded that under their interpretation, Google is entitled to immunity in this case. And that determined the due date for our brief as opposed to a brief that concluded otherwise, might have been filed in support of the petitioners' force, And
0: because, are you, I take it you're a member of the D.C. Bar?
2: No, I'm a member of the California Bar.
0: So that allows you to submit on their behalf, because I noticed the students' names weren't on the brief. That's because you have to do it on their behalf. Right?
2: That's right. I am a lawyer. I'm allowed to be on the brief. Uh, the brief has to have at least one member of the Supreme Court Bar, and that was someone at the law firm we partnered with called mm-hmm. Munger-Tools. And so
0: you concluded, if I have it correctly and from looking at it, that you weren't settling the big-picture questions about tech. You were saying... Reading what this law says, you concluded, if I'm not wrong, that it plainly says Google is not liable in this case because of the, the text and the intent of the 1996 Section 230. Is that correct?
2: That's correct. Um, and why did, you, why did you come to that conclusion? Our, well, but again, without revealing confidences, uh, the, the position of the brief is limited to the facts of the case, which is where the clients, and I think I can reveal this, thought that they had the most um, expertise in describing their words, what they meant, and their application to the facts of this case.
0: And what did they mean? I mean, I'm taking what you wrote. I'm not asking you to tell me private conversations. Like, in what you submitted in your brief, what did you argue, Eleanor, that, that this law says and meant?
1: So, first of all, it's not a blanket protection for digital platforms. Yeah, you're making it's that clear. It's also yeah. not a blanket protection for all recommendations, right? Mm-hmm. We just went through the two prongs of the statute what I talked about earlier Mm -hmm. uh, about create and develop. And then a second piece, which is, does the claim at issue treat the platform as a publisher or speaker? And so you said, you know, we're not getting the big picture questions. That's because Section 230 is actually tailored to be one of those case-by-case analyses where you have to be really careful about what exactly is the content at issue? What's the relationship between the platform and the content? What was their degree of involvement in creating that? Contest?
0: So can you give me specifics repeating at the prong for people like me who are not as conversant with this? The two-prong test, how did this case, based on what you wrote in the brief, not private conversations, based on what you argue in the brief, how does this case pass those two tests?
1: Recommendations are just like any other content moderation decision immunized by Section 230. So they fall under that same test.
0: Meaning if they say you should watch this video, it's still not their video. Right under two thirty, they don't believe YouTube was publishing this.
1: They didn't. Uh, they they, I believe they are treating YouTube as publishing it, but they didn't alter the content. They didn't go in and change the video or edit the text and and say make it say something that it didn't before in a way that made it either more illegal or made it illegal whereas before it was legal.
0: So if they had taken out, if you take out of a video. A threat to kill someone or blow up something, but there are still other problems with the video. You're actually in more trouble because you edited it. If you just leave it alone, then say my hands aren't on it, so we're just passing it along in the civic commons.
1: I think that's a good question. I, I think the way that we would the the brief would answer that is you have to ask whether or not it contributed to the illegality. Hmm. So if you went in and you made it more legal.
0: But they still had parts you know, that were illegal. You probably illegal.
1: wouldn't end up being liable.
0: But it sounds like you're still liable for the parts that are illegal because you're no longer having the protection of saying you didn't alter it, that it's not your content, it's their content.
1: I think that's a great question. I defer to David. On I mean, this is the basic a, an level. Because additional... I
0: told you from the air what my yeah. bugaboo is as a, as a publisher of a very small publication that I feel like they get a, a free card to make tons of money and influence things on a large scale. And not take responsibility for what they're doing in a way that smaller publishers don't. And they should. But you're saying the value is that having instantaneous public comment, a flood of it at all times, contributes to democracy.
1: Well, I do want to honor that instinct, right?
0: And that... you also said there are guardrails. The, 20, the, the 1996 Act does have certain things they're not allowed to do.
1: Absolutely. And, and I, think, I think that knee-jerk reaction is right. Obviously, we were going to the Supreme Court on a really specific issue, and there are lots of proposals that Section 230 should be amended. That either and that's stand- Cong- it
0: should be Congress, although these days it's getting fuzzy who makes the who makes the laws.
1: That, that should definitely. Be tell
0: me, con- the, I interrupted you, and I apologize. No, no, no. The second prong. How did that apply?
1: The second prong was about whether or not the claim treated YouTube or its parent company uh, as a publisher or speaker, and in this case, it was pretty clear that what they were doing was publishing videos
0: so how but but you're arguing they shouldn't be held liable so s-
1: correct so if you're treating someone as a publisher or speaker section 230 immunity is going to apply okay and if you did not create or develop the content in whole or in part in a way that contributed to its illegality again you're you're immune mm-hmm. but you have to pass both of those bars in order to get to section 230 immunity. and
2: what's the other side arguing on that like what's the counter argument in The the counter argument is um, as to both prongs. One is that the platform, by recommending, is creating some new kind of information. Mm. The act of recommendation is content creation. That's correct. That's That's so interesting. That's the position that the United States government is taking. That's so interesting. On the question of whether the claim treats the platform as the publisher, there's a related argument, which is that this claim does not arise simply by virtue of this one-time posting of a particular video, but rather by the amplification and by the targeting of specific people who might be vulnerable to the message, which has a different effect and is different than merely holding it liable because of the fact that it made it public.
0: So, and and if you don't mind bearing with me, since I'm not a lawyer, is that saying that there's publishing and there's publishing? So if you're just a publisher, you know, you get this protection on 230s, but if you're a A different kind of publisher who's like going and feeding stuff just to vulnerable people to go down a rabbit hole and do crazy stuff. that makes They're arguing the other side, not you guys.
2: That that makes you a different kind of publisher who isn't covered by the act? Not quite, because the law doesn't cover publishers because they're publishers. It relates to whether the claim at issue would treat the defendant as a publisher with respect to the imposition of liability for the mere publishing of the content. Mm -hmm. So it might apply to me, for example. I don't have to be a publisher in order to uh, claim Section 230 liability if I happen to operate an Internet platform that allows people to post comments. I could create a website. Um, Eleanor could post something. It could be libelous, for example. I would be still entitled to the possible um, protection of the immunity if if I met the standards of the statute.
0: As long as you don't change what Eleanor published and Eleanor could be held liable. That's correct. Theoretically. That's correct. Right.
2: i wouldn't do that to one of my students and... <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah 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 so uh, the florida law is also being heard in conjunction with is similar got struck down but this got upheld and um judge kevin newson said that their content moderation decisions constitute the same sort of editorial judgments entitled to a first member protections when made by a newspaper i I taking that out of context I guess because I think that one of the underlying things are whether one of the, whether social media platforms are, quote, dumb pipes reflexively transmitting data from point A to B, which is that one of the judges ruled. Another one said, no, their content moderation decisions are the same sort of editorial judges the First Amendment protects. I mean, is that sort of what's at the stake here in a larger stake, or no, even though it's not what you dealt with in your brief?
2: When you step back, I think that's a good description of the question that society is facing and that the law is facing. We have these new things where people can contribute, um, it's important that they be able to do so in real time, at least some people think so. Uh, and they operate at scale that we've never really considered before. So the question before society as well as the courts is what are these things? How should we treat them? And when should they be accountable? And when, they sh- when should they not? They are neither just a dumb pipe, nor acting like a single person who makes a decision about every single piece of information that goes up and um, makes it- Well, a, I, was, ma- I was
0: going back to something um, Eleanor said. So when they wrote it in 96, they talked about the importance of the real-time discussion, right? There was a fraction of the real-time content that we had then. We didn't even have videos. We didn't have YouTube in 1996. Matter of fact, it was really the election of 2000 when people even started getting the breaking news. And I, I, I totally respect this is out of the purview of what you're doing with this um, brief, so maybe you don't want to talk about this. But do you feel the changing reality might change those questions? Why is it important that people instantaneously be able to spread information and reactions and possibly libel or lure people into violent acts rather than if it were instead of a billion people you know weighing in in five minutes it were a hundred thousand people in a moderated way to follow libel law over 24 hours what would society
2: lose i think that there are trade-offs to either of those uh, scenarios Uh, we we know that there are historical situations where people's ability to communicate about real-time events whether it be um, the Arab Spring or, Ooh, right. or whatnot. The Arab Spring is the great example. we probably are happy that people were able to communicate with one another without having to go through someone who would make an editorial decision about whether something was good information or bad information or should be trusted or not. Usually the people who make those decisions are not like the New Haven Independent. Usually they're parts of large conglomerate organizations but that But we are, make
0: mistakes too, but it was important because sure. so, there was something you said earlier that made me think about the advice that lawyers were giving. So when we started the Independent, we you know got up all night doing these comments, we were posting... But we wanted to read everyone first because we didn't want to libel somebody. We didn't want permission or to have permission to have people call people racial slurs. And, and you know we wanted to be freewheeling and we didn't care if they were left or right, but we didn't we, we believed the law had standards for a reason, even if you can get away with it. And I remember at the time I did legal research and the corporate change lawyers were saying, as long as you don't touch it under the 1996 act, as long as you don't alter it, you're passing along a product that isn't yours in the public comments. And I thought that was such an abrogation of responsibility. These these news organizations that reach a mass and have such impact to destroy people's lives no longer were responsible under the law. And I didn't see what the social good was in that. And now that it's so much of a bigger level and instant, is the social good so that if we luckily get the Arab Spring and in that country the autocrats haven't figured out how to shut down the pipes? We can find out that your neighbor's rising up the government. You go to the streets. Is that what we're really fighting for here? When Margie Taylor Greene gets to harass someone from Parkland about whether they made up or some, Alex Jones is getting the, the people in Newtown having to move five times because uh, they're getting doxxed?
2: One of the issues is that we don't know as much as we should about what's happening, in part because the data that would help us understand the situation on a broader scale is not always available to researchers, to academics to anyone who would be wanting to know the answers to the questions you're asking. Um, It's difficult to weigh things against other things when we don't know what's happening on at least one side of that balance. Um, Right now, we know that these um, platforms have um, increased in size in terms of the scale, velocity, and volume of the material that's posted. We know that there are some things that we can fairly attributably um, assign to one um, particular platform or another based on conduct that um, did or did not occur. But for the most part, it is very still uh, I would say a nascent um, area of study to figure out what is the actual connection between what's going on in these platforms and things that are happening in the real well, world. Well,
0: you're talking about a case like this. you say that everything with the guy blowing it up. But I'm trying to understand what the value is on instantaneous, hyper-mass, immediate publishing, what people say, and information. What is the flow? I'm still trying to figure out what the
2: upside is well again i think this is in my personal capacity i would would weigh it against the uh, possibility that if we didn't have that and if we weren't headed that way that it would be companies like the big behemoths who are currently the tech platforms making decisions not in my interest or your interest so why can't you go to a different platform then i mean trump did Truth social he didn't like what twitter did one of the problems is that there is a monopoly of power in most of these markets and so although yes trump could go to truth social It's not the case that everyone can switch. I know, for example, people who might want to switch from Facebook, but their children's school schedules are on Facebook. There are barriers to switching. There are barriers to switching, and what we should do, I think, is open up these markets to more competition. Oh,
0: totally, totally, and have the ability not to to have other ways that they're able to monopolize the market. But, okay, okay.
1: I'll just say one thing on that point. I mean, think about how much time you invested in going through each one of those comments. You said people were staying up all night. How, How many comments was that? And how many staffers did you have to right. put so we to can't, that can't. And task. the New York
0: Times does that. So blow Times. it up and then think about so how you know, much decided, capital you have to invest. We invited all our, we stopped because stuff, sewers, stuff was getting through. We stopped our comments and our readers flipped out. We want to comment. They convinced us it was important. We went through a big process. what we decided was I'd rather have 12 comments than 100 on a story. And we decided that we're going to do the best we could, but we weren't just going to publish the stuff. If we had 12 intelligent thoughts that were pretty diverse as opposed to 100, it actually was a more meaningful conversation. And if you don't like that, I always told people, some people I started banning. And I had, at first I wouldn't ban anyone because I felt like I would be imposing my political views and I was scared I would be doing that. Then after a while I said, they're putting in such crap about people and it's so against the reason you went into media that I'm just going to brace the inner shine and do it. And I tell people, look, I'm sorry you feel bad that I didn't let you call that person that, that... Ugly name, or suggest they committed a crime they didn't crime, but you can go to the channel 8 website, ABC, they'll let you put that there. You can go to the New Haven Resort website. they'll let you put that there. and you have freedom of choice. and I agree you got to deal with the anti-competitive parts of the market, big time. But you'd still had the choice, and in fact, people in New Haven made the choice that if they cared about stuff, they were going to go here for the discussion, and when they make decisions in government, they, they feel, even though it's not a scientific science pulse. And there are other websites, especially on Facebook, where hundreds of people weigh in. And I would argue it really doesn't matter.
1: Yeah, I think it's very so, context-dependent. I think it's a lot harder for a social media platform, for instance, It is. To How say- much
0: money? They can't do it at that scale. And I say, I'm crying. I'm playing the violin. So Facebook, your business model on Twitter that's based on something pretty ugly, you can do in scale and make tons of money while you're destroying people's lives and wrecking the world. I'm sorry you can't do that because it's not going to work at scale. Because you can't hire enough people. You're going to have to have a lot of smaller ones. So Mastodon tried it with Twitter. Mastodon was boring, so we lasted there a week and <laughs> left. But may, and, you know, it's the school schedules on Facebook. But then there'll be something that's interesting that they will put the school schedules on Facebook.
1: So let's imagine instead that you were talking about which friends you got to see posts from. And some third party is telling you you can only see the posts from 12 of your friends instead of 100.
0: Which Facebook is dumb because they want to make money on users now because some of the very good laws that people like you advocated where they can't take our privacy away means they have to now monetize that. So you know what my answer is? That's okay. Facebook's a private company. Musk can do whatever he wants on Twitter. I'm going to find some other platform. And if I don't want one today, my life isn't lost. And I have, I'll, I'll call up my friend. And I'll call up five friends. But I still want that. But I don't feel like if it's a month lag time till you find a better alternative, especially if people like you keep the marketplace competitive. I still know, I know I'm being hardcore, and I'm sorry. I don't see what's
2: lost. I don't see what the value is in that scale at all costs with no responsibility for product safety. So my personal inclinations are probably more similar to you, yours than maybe our previous But I know much described. less about the law than you but, guys do. That's why I'm asking um, you. But I will say that uh, Section 230 does not immunize just the biggest and the largest tech platforms. It applies to everyone. And one of the concerns of that was at the minds of those who drafted it and enacted it and remains uh, top of mind for many people who support something like it is that there are small outlets that might not be able to put into the effort might not be able to put in the effort that you and your staff members did and if that's the case i would prefer that they would still be able to try their best to market themselves to compete um without the threat of liability that could shut them down because one person posted something
0: and i would argue someone who has run some pretty low budget operations i didn't feel i should be in business if i could destroy somebody i didn't think that was so important i agree it's hard
2: but then you just have to settle for having fewer comments up until you get to them perhaps uh Again, we're weighing values, right? We're weighing the value of being able to democratize participation by um, making something available, available that is like a, like a megaphone, right? Someone right. goes to their computer and says something. How many people say things that are not destructive? How much would we lose if we shut that down? These are difficult questions and they're value judgments. And the great and, thing about the, the reason we believed in it so highly and now it's gotten more complicated is the barrier of entry entries have gotten so
0: low that anyone could do it.
2: Well, er, anyone can it. You might post, not be able to have 1,000
0: people that day. But you could do, like, you know in Vermont, the email list they have now, people who care about state government, where you get to post once a day?
2: I'm unfamiliar with that.
0: And it's really interesting. It's their answer to social media. And it's been really successful. And so we've lost their ability to instantaneously post 100 things a day about state government. And all these people who seriously consider what's happening in state and they have different points of view have to think about what they posted.
1: I mean, I think it's really good to have alternatives like that. And I would emphasize just as a point of commonality, I think, between the three of us, we're not pro-tech or anti-tech. I We're agree. just looking at pretty I love specific issues.
0: And the potential, And I love that you're doing that. We're talking about that on Dateline New Haven, WNHHFM, with two people who are in the mix at a big case about to be argued in the Supreme Court. They've just submitted an amicus brief, which is very interesting, about Section 230 of the 1996 Community Decency Act, Communications Decency Act, and what that means for what we can and can't have on social media platforms. Eleanor, Rundy, was it fun working on this? Was it worth dropping a class to work on this?
1: I hate to say this because I adore the professor whose class I dropped, but uh, it was a lot of fun, and I'm glad I did it.
0: What you learn from it?
1: There was a lot of collaboration. There was a lot of teamwork. I learned a lot about the, uh, the Communications Decency Act itself uh, and, and the process. I'd never done anything like this before. We had filed a, a, an amicus brief as a clinic on a, a very different matter, a consumer protection matter, but we had never done it in the Supreme Court before.
0: And David, how about for you? I mean, you've had a long career. You've been at Southern Poverty Law Center. You're at Omidyar Network, which really does some of the groundbreaking stuff and how the promise of the internet early on with information. You guys are a fantastic organization. Um, and you work on anti-hate and extremist litigation. So when we had these arguments before, no one's going to take away your credibility and caring about you know people not being abused. And what, uh, what was it like for you to work on this project? Did it have any new insights for you? Did you learn anything about what these issues mean or how you address them in the legal context?
2: As a lawyer, every time you take on a new issue or write a new brief, you learn something that you didn't know before, you think about it differently. And what I love about working with the students in the clinic is I get to watch them doing the same thing and undergoing the same um, processes, where they dig and they dig and they dig, and every time they dig, they find something else. But what I really enjoy about the practice of law, uh, as well as the joy that I'm, I'm hoping to instill in the students is that when you're working with each other, you learn more together than you do by yourself, and you end up really respecting one another. Um, you become friends. You're in the trenches, and as people say. It's kind look... of
0: exciting to get a common purpose and all that. You know, when I think about the generational change, I see that in journalism. I learned so much from working with people who are Eleanor's age, not to be paternalistic here, you know, like the old guy. But they often see things in ways I never thought of. Absolutely. i doing my job the same way or even just analyzing a political situation, you know. Like you used to think there's just like no way you're going to have gay marriage. I mean, when we when we're doing LGBT stuff, we didn't even call it LGBT in 1980s and 70s. If you thought you could have civil unions, can America get there? They're going to have like this backers, everybody kills each other. And all of a sudden, no, we can have gay, ma- you know, younger people say we can have gay marriage. And the world's not going to blow up. And in fact, all these conservative Christian Republican young people are going to agree. So is there anything like that that you saw in the law here about the way we look at communications or the way the potential of information to deprive people of their rights or the way they looked at the law and saw that as an instrument for addressing that if you've done it for so many years.
1: You know, it's funny. I was listening to the Bostock oral argument this morning or as an assignment for a different class. And I noticed that they're all about hypotheticals. And it was amazing the degree of imagination that you need in order to write an effective brief. like And, this and, one. and
0: your generation has so much more of the imagination because we have too many years of accumulated experience to believe that limits what we think can be done right did that come into play here at all
1: well I don't know about that David was really our shepherd so I, I, w- I certainly wouldn't say that the students knew more than he did but I didn't we say had... no
0: more did you see possibilities that he didn't see or did you see new ways of looking at it
1: I think everybody brought a different perspective to this to this project what about you David
2: well I sometimes am um, reminded by how much of your lives have been lived with tech mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that that sometimes leads to deference to the fact of tech, as, as well as its inevitable change. And I sometimes think of it as a, a static thing, um, something I came upon later in life. So it's, it's a different approach. And sometimes Is that I, a
0: little bit from how you used to have to crack a lot of books that then they look up quickly and they, you used to have to write out stuff oh that my they goodness. cut I had, Yeah,
2: I had to read books that used paper. Have you, have you ever heard of such a thing? I had to look at indexes like and, and tables <laughs> of contents. Uh, no, it's not, it's not necessarily those kinds of things. It's the uh, way in which everything about their lives is already suffused with technology and it's not a separate thing to them and it helps me um, remind myself and uh, that i i might have a, a bias that i need to check
0: that's great we're talking about that wnha so here's something that people always used to think until five minutes ago supreme court kind of looks at what your brief was about is that what the law intended was that was the language is that what the law and constitution And then Congress is supposed to make the laws that decide the big issues we're talking about today. If the case after case was a shadow docket or not a shadow docket, the Supreme Court is making that policy and deciding the big questions. Who's going to decide these big questions we're talking about that aren't about whether you're right or wrong in your brief, but what this platform should be in 2023 as opposed to 1996?
2: I will predict that there will be legislative activity. There has been at various times over the course of the long life of Section 230. And one hears grumblings even today that there will be activity maybe quite soon. We'll see what happens. But it ought to be um, the subject of concern for everyone who has any interest in... So there's been,
0: for a few years now, there's been, tell me if I'm wrong about this, because you know a lot more than I do, there's been some convergence on left and right. I mean, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, and Amy Klobuchar from Minnesota, are agreeing on a whole set of responsibilities they want to add to big techs and how they're operating. And so theoretically, in the way Congress works, that should be an opening for bipartisan legislation that can make change on a big issue. We saw year after year, there are a lot of stories about that. People like us read them. And then they don't make it in the end when the priorities are what's going to get called. Because it seems like, I don't know if it's because there are enough political donations on both sides of the aisle that there's enough incentive for them to get over it. Or because the polarization of American politics that people have to view issues in camps so they really can't come together to solve a big issue. Whatever the reason is generation here how he was optimistic here he believes congress can do it you've watched congress now as a, as an adult what do you think or do you think supreme court's going to continue just p- p- congress punting it over the supreme court and then we'll be mad at them, but they'll be deciding these big philosophical issues
1: i agree with david that the key is that the american people get to make these decisions as as close to popularly as possible and that suggests you know that's what we con- want are we able action, to, are we right.
0: able to do that can our system do it?
1: I think it can. I'm optimistic as well. And another reason I'm optimistic is that you see local and state legislatures. They can't act on Section 230 because it's a federal law. But in many other areas, consumer protection, privacy, products liability, civil rights, uh, the the states are acting to ensure that our digital society and our digital economy is structured in the way that the American people want it to be.
0: And what what would you... Folks, do you feel comfortable
2: saying what you would like to see in
0: legislation that comes out of Congress?
2: Uh, I am in the still deciding um, group. Uh, These are very difficult balancing questions, and uh, I don't know where the balance should be struck. Uh, I have some views as to particular instances, and whenever I think of those, it's always difficult to articulate exactly what that would look like as legislation. I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to continue as a clinic, to be involved um, with those questions and maybe even work with some legislators, legislators who are. So, what's um, next in for charge... you?
0: Are you long term at this clinic? What other work are you doing and, and how engaged are you going to be on this issue?
2: Uh, I hope I'm long term at the clinic. I'm also doing a lot of work with economists at the Tobin Center and elsewhere on other issues that are related to digital regulation in particular.
0: And are you? Look, we talked before and are you and I, you're looking at the European Union, which is kind of moving ahead of America and throwing we, out some ideas that we can watch. What are you watching we, of interest there? We
2: are. We, um, along with um, a lot of. Economists and lawyers in Europe recently published a paper that offered some insights into where we think the European Commission should put its strongest efforts in the first couple of years of the enforcement of the Digital Markets Act, which is a comprehensive regulation that changed dramatically the way that the digital platforms work. For privacy,
0: anti-monopoly, which is a big issue Mostly
2: anti-monopoly and other ways in which they um, are competing with one another. There's a different regulation called the Digital Services Act that is more concerned with the kinds of harms that social media platforms and others are um, contributing.
0: So the one you're focusing on is like whether they're going to privilege their own products if they're the
2: ones selling. That's right. That's a key provision. Um, And it's very difficult to figure out how that's going to be operationalized. But the bottom line is that uh, there is consensus, it seems, uh, in Europe and now with some legislators in the United States who uh, propose something similar, that these platforms should not be able to preference their own products in a way that's not visible, at least to consumers amazon for example p- putting its own products in the buy box without people knowing right, the buy box the yeah or for example google putting its own results its own products its own services at the top of the service the um search results, results page for and then the search app results. stores yeah. that's correct app stores as well
0: and then is it the netherlands they're gonna become like our california you know how states <laughs> california does environmental regulations or, or new laws and the rest of the country watches and industry reacts because they're such a big part of the market they're saying that Are you holding them the Dutch standard, the tech companies saying if we meet their rules that are strict for about privacy and anti-monopolistic practices, everybody else that will fall
2: in line? There is some of that happening. Um, The Netherlands has had uh, some interesting moves it's taken in connection, for example, with dating apps and whatnot. But I think that the analog here is that people are beginning to realize that the action is taking place in Europe. And Europe is a big enough market that if Europe requires it. Um, it might not be California that has to do it. Maybe it's just That's what Europe. I mean. And if, maybe if, if it's Europe and California, the digital platforms have really no choice but to fall in line. We'll and, see and, how that plays out.
0: And Eleanor, what do you see? You say you're not sure what you're doing next life. You're graduating this year. Coming out of this experience, how do you? See, what kind of engagement do you see on this issue in your life moving forward?
1: That's right. My post-graduation plans are still TBD, but I hope that I get to continue in this vein on data governance, on algorithmic regulation, on digital platforms more generally.
0: And am I correct that you are optimistic about a society's ability to strike that balance, to have these tech platforms have more responsibility and have some good guardrails up while not losing what you see as a benefit to society with this real-time mass
2: participation in civic discourse?
1: If I weren't optimistic, I don't think I could operate.
2: And how about you? I am. I think that this is the challenge of the day. It is the challenge of the day. uh, And we now realize it. And I think that there are very few segments of society that won't be engaged well, David Nellie and Eleanor Rondi, thank you for taking on the challenge. We love when smart people take the time to try
0: to wrestle with some of society's biggest issue. And thank you for taking the time for coming on WNHHF. Of course, thank you. And Thanks talk about Good me. luck with this case. it be exciting for you to first. Are going to watch it online you are you going to go to the court or
2: what? We might go. We'll see. You might
0: we might go have court. a little field trip. All right. Well, I hope it's a fun field trip. Thanks to Harry Dros, who's working the control, putting us on more platforms than are contained in the multiverse. We're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic Experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Feel to Be Free from the group CD A Plea for Peace. This is Paul Bass inviting you to fly free with us all day and all night long at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.